0: Uh, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27 and going through uh, verse 12 of chapter 12. Continuing our series, going through the book of Mark uh, with Mark 11, starting in verse 27 and going through 12, 12. <clears throat> and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son." And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. We seem, as a people, uh, to be enthralled by stories of failure. And usually, the the bigger the failure, the more spectacular the crash, the more we want to hear about it. If you ask a Star Wars fan, what is their favorite Star Wars movie? Eight times out of ten, they're going to say, Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back is the only movie that the heroes lose in all of the Star Wars movies. And that's the one they like. That's the one they want to see again. In 2008, Tom Cruise starred in the movie Valkyrie. It's a true story about a conspiracy among German generals to assassinate and kill Adolf Hitler in uh, 1944. I wonder how that one turned out. They didn't do it. They failed. They weren't able to do it. But guess what? I saw the movie anyway. Millions of other people also saw the movie, knowing the whole time they're not going to kill Hitler. He doesn't die here in this fashion. He dies at the end of the war at his own hand. Obviously, they failed. But we saw the movie anyway. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill was a podcast that came out last year detailing the the rise and fall of a specific church in Seattle under the... uh, leadership and authority of a pastor named Mark Driscoll. It rose, quote-unquote, by growing into a huge church with a ton of campuses, a ton of people who attended, and then it fell whenever he fell, when he eventually resigned and left, and the the church dissipated incredibly quickly. It was must-listen viewing for a lot of pastors I know, myself included. Anytime a new episode dropped, I stopped what I was doing, and I listened to the podcast. We seem to like stories that detail failure, and hopefully, at least the, the reason we would claim the reason uh, that we enjoy these stories, is so that we can learn from the mistakes of others, so that we don't have to repeat them. Hopefully it's not just a way for us to feel better about ourselves by knowing the gritty details of how these other people crashed and burned. Hopefully when we see the failures of others, we can see how susceptible we are to that same failure, to those same problems, that we might avoid those things. Today's text shows us the failures of the religious leaders in the time of Jesus. But we can't let ourselves off the hook by thinking that these failures are particular to them. That it's only about these scribes, these chief priests, these elders. We have to understand that we are just as prone to these same failures as they were. Today we'll see four failures of religious people in our text. The first failure of religious people that we're going to see in the text is of holding on to earthly authority. Jesus is approached in the text and questioned by a group that's made up of all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. It was like a posse. It was a gang walking up to him and questioned him as he was walking through the temple. And they gathered together together. And questioned him because they thought that they were the ones who had all the authority. They thought that they were holding all the cards in the encounter. They said, we're the chief priests. We're the scribes. We're the elders. Let's go ask a few questions to this punk. This guy who's been turning over the the market tables. This guy who's been rabble-rousing in the temple. They were very proud of their own power. They were like assistant managers who have been left in charge while the actual manager goes off and gets lunch. The older sibling who's been uh, tasked to babysit when the parents go out for a movie. They were Barney Fife, the chief priest. So because they thought that they were holding all the cards, they began to question Jesus and his authority. Verse 28. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They said, look, we're bona fide. Look at our badges. We know who we are. We know the authority we have. We have these positions, this status. Who are you? Who said you could do this? Notice they didn't engage with Jesus on the substance of anything that he had done up to this point. The day before, he had gone into the the marketplace, turned over the temples, and cleared out the temple. He had quoted scripture. He had pointed out to them the error of their ways, that what they were doing was clearly against God's chosen purposes And intentions for that space. But they didn't talk about any of that. They didn't say, hey, you're actually wrong. Here's the Old Testament text that proves that we're correct. They didn't say, what do you mean we're not bearing fruit as we're supposed to be doing? Look at all the good things we're doing in Jerusalem. They had no defense. And so their response basically amounted to, who let this guy in here? Who's letting him do this? They don't like his message or his teaching or his actions. So then they start questioning his authority. And Christ's reply shows exactly what their true problem was. Look at what he says in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? They were looking for authority in the wrong place. That's what Jesus' question is meant to highlight. Whatever authority John the Baptist had, was it from heaven, from God, or was it from man? And this gang, the chief chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they understand exactly what he's getting at. And we can tell that in their deliberations. They're, They're right. If John had a heavenly authority, the honest, obvious question after that is, okay, if you knew he had authority from heaven, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you trust him? If it's true for John, then it's certainly true for Jesus. His authority does come from heaven. It comes from God himself because he is God himself. That's the actual answer to their question that he never gives. I do these things by my own authority. I gave it to me. I am God. I can give authority to whom I choose, and it is mine to give and to take away. But Christ shows them by his question that even if he were to tell them that truth, even if he said, yep, it's from heaven, I got it from God, I am God, they're not going to believe him. It doesn't matter what he says. They're not going to change what they're actually doing. They won't accept his answer just like they wouldn't accept the actual truth about John and his authority because the truth was not the answer they were looking for. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. Because they were looking for authority in the wrong place. They were so focused on their earthly authority, their earthly power, their earthly position, that they completely forgot, completely disregarded the true heavenly authority that was staring them in the face. And it's convenient for them to focus on earthly authority because that's what they actually have. They have earthly authority. They don't have heavenly authority. So they're just focused on whatever gives them the authority, whatever gives them the power that they can possibly be able to hold on to. These religious leaders failed by holding on so tightly to their earthly authority that they completely ignored heavenly authority when it was staring them in the face. And any Christian who holds any kind of earthly authority, if they're being honest, will tell you how easy it is for us to do that. It's just part of our sinful nature. It's just something we have to deal with as people. We get just a glimpse of power, a hint of say-so, and it's like we're Gollum with the ring. We just hold on to it for dear life, daring someone to try to pry it out of our cold, dead hands. And the worst part of all of this is how hard it is for us to recognize exactly how tightly we tend to hold on to our earthly authority. We don't notice how tightly we're holding on to it until it starts to slip away. We can fail by holding on to earthly authority over and against true heavenly authority. But we can combat these impulses at the same time. We can avoid these failures of these religious leaders in their day and in ours by remembering where the true authority lies. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. right before Christ ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples, his apostles, the Great Commission. That's what we say. But we usually say 19 and 20. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Right before we get there, we have Matthew 28, verse 18, which says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has all authority. All power. All ability. It's been given to him, the Christ. All authority both in heaven and on earth. It's his Whatever earthly authority you might have is under and within his sovereign rule over all of creation. So we here on earth have to learn to hold on loosely to our earthly power. Rather than holding on to it for dear life like these religious leaders were in this text. But holding on to earthly authority wasn't their only failure. They also failed by misplacing their fears. That's the second failure of religious people that we'll see in our text today. They were misplacing their fears. Their deliberations continue on in verse 32. But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. You see, we see nothing about fear of God in this verse. We don't hear anything about how afraid they were that they might offend God by misplacing his heavenly authority. By by them misattributing where the authority comes from and where it goes to. They weren't afraid of God. They were afraid of the people. It tells us explicitly they feared the crowds. They said, we can't say John's baptism and his authority came from heaven because that would mean that we were wrong and we should have listened to him. They were afraid of being wrong too. But they also couldn't say that it was from man because the crowds, the peasants around them, they would have disagreed with that. They would have had a real problem. if They would have said, nope, it was just from man. It was just from whatever we decided to give to him. That's not what the crowd wanted to hear. And they were afraid to say anything that might possibly upset the crowd. You see, fear of man is a terrible thing. Throughout human history, we have seen it make fools of men time and time again. And we're all susceptible to it. In fact, no one, if they are being honest, enjoys being hated by a crowd. Even if you meet someone who says, yes, I am glad those people hate me. They're not actually glad those people hate them. They're glad that because those people hate them, these other people love them. We want to be liked. We want to be popular. High school for so many people just never ends. You just want to be popular. You want to be well-liked. That is, in some sense, just human nature. And that's why... We can't allow ourselves to focus on the opinion of man as if that's all there is. Because we're all susceptible to it. There is a God in heaven whose opinion of us matters infinitely more than that of the crowd. In fact, his opinion of us is the only thing that actually matters about us. We have to combat the fear of man, which we're all susceptible to. And the only way to combat that fear is to have a greater fear of God. Hebrews 10, verses 30 and 31 says this, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the kind of fear we have to have. That is a rightly ordered fear. That's a fear that's not misplaced. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Much more fearful than to fall into the hands of any man, of any crowd. But these religious leaders, they fear man more than God. So what do they do? Verse 33. So they answer Jesus, we do not know. They lied. They said they don't know. When given the choice between telling the truth and acknowledging that they were wrong before, or possibly saying what they actually believed now, which was still wrong, and facing the consequences from the crowd, from the backlash that was going, backlash that was going to occur, they chose neither. Uh, we don't know. It was a cop-out. They were so afraid of the crowd, so afraid of being wrong, that they were willing to lie. They pled ignorance. Just as they feared man more than God, they feared for their own safety more than they feared life. It is the job of all people, but religious leaders specifically, to tell the truth, no matter the cost, no matter their consequences. It is my job as your pastor to preach the word of God in season and out of season. Even if it costs me. Even if it means that something's going to happen to me that I don't want to happen. There are times when it may not be easy for you to hear what I believe is the truth from the word of God. There are times when it's not going to be easy for me to say what I believe is the truth from the word of God. But I can't love you and lie to you at the same time. I can't lie to you and preach the word at the same time. The only way for me to avoid the failure of the religious leaders in this text, the only way for any of us to avoid the failure of the religious leaders in this text, is to fear God more than man. To fear lying more than the consequences of telling the truth. And because these leaders have no fear of God, have no fear of lying, they receive neither God nor the truth. The rest of verse 33. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They could have heard who God was. They could have heard the truth. They could have been confronted with the true earthly and heavenly authority of God the Son incarnate. And instead, they got nothing. Because they didn't fear God. They didn't fear lying. Had their fears been correctly placed, they might have heard the truth from Jesus' own mouth. That he is God in the flesh, who by his own authority and sent by his Father has come as the Messiah to redeem his people and to save them from their sins. They could have heard the truth of the gospel in this encounter with Jesus. They could have received the revelation of God and that truth. And in that revelation, in that truth, they could have had life in his name. They could have been saved, but they failed because their fears were misplaced. Their fears were misordered. The third failure of religious people in our text today that we can see is the failure of forgetting our place. Jesus doesn't answer their question, but he answers their question by giving them some sort of parable. The point of the parable, if you were trying to sum it up, what he says in these next few verses is that God, the owner, has given his people, his most treasured possession, over to his tenants, the religious leaders. And these religious leaders have disrespected the owner, God, disrespected his property, his people, they've disrespected his servants, the prophets, and ultimately they've disrespected his son. Therefore, God is tearing down the old system. The old ways which gave them whatever authority they have. And he's replacing it with something new. The problem with his tenants, the religious leaders that he has given charge over his people, is that they have forgotten their place. Verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. You see, they think they're the owners but they're merely tenants. There is an owner. There is someone who planted this vineyard, someone who cared for it, someone who cultivated it, and made all the necessary preparations, and then he left everything that he had done in the care of his tenants and went away. But now the tenants think that it's their property to do with as they please. God's given the care of his people, his most treasured possession, over to these scribes, these elders, these chief priests, and where they were supposed to be caring for the people well, where they were supposed to be cultivating his property that it might produce fruit, they've acted in their own interests rather than the interest of the owner because they think that they deserve the fruit. Verse 2 When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. You see, the agreement would have been when he left this is my property. You can live here, you can work here, you can keep some of the fruit here, but I get what's mine. And the fruit belongs to me before it belongs to you. You can lease this land and live on it as long as you care for it and give me some of the fruit as payment. But notice the owner had to send for the fruit he deserved. They weren't proactively providing it to the owner. They were keeping it right up until he asked for it. Because they thought, no, this is ours. This should belong to me. And so, whenever he does ask for it, they mistreat and ignore his messengers. Verse 3. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. They not only didn't provide the necessary fruit, but they beat the messenger. So the owner, he just keeps trying again. He says, I don't know, maybe that one didn't work. I'll I'll do this again. I'll give him another shot. And this guy gets beat up even worse. They hit him on the head. So the owner tries again, this guy they kill, and the process just continues over and over and over again. The owner saying, this is mine, I'm only asking for what already belongs to me. Them saying no, beating up the messenger who sent them that message, and then sending him back. Some they beat, some they killed. The tenants thought that they could ignore the messengers. They could ignore the servants that the owner sent without any kind of recourse. I said, no, this is our land now. It belongs to us now. When you read the Old Testament and you see how the prophets of God were treated over and over and over again, it's astounding the things that they had to go through. So you would think that being a prophet would be a high office. You are speaking on behalf of the God of the universe. You are able to speak and then say, thus says the Lord. You would think that all the people would be respecting them, that all the people would heed every word that came out of of their mouths. But these guys are persecuted more than anyone else in all of Israel. And that's true throughout the entire Old Testament, over and over and over again, right up until we get to John the Baptist, the the clearest connection to our text today. He was a voice shouting out in the wilderness, God's messenger who had come to prepare the way of the Lord, the way of the Messiah. And he was persecuted. He lived in the desert eating locusts and honey and wearing shirts of hair. He was imprisoned. For telling the truth. And he was ultimately beheaded for doing his job as a prophet. You see, the religious leaders in Israel had forgotten their place, and so they failed. They thought they were the owners. They thought that the people were theirs to do with as they pleased, so they didn't do their job as tenants. They thought that they deserved the fruit for themselves, so they led the people to produce no fruit for God. They ignored the voice of God and his messengers. So, in return, they never heard his words. They never were able to speak with his voice. They failed. And those of us here in this church, all of us, but particularly those in leadership, we have to take these points to heart. You see, this church, this people, you do not belong to me. I am your pastor, but I'm just a tenant. You belong to God. You're his people. You're not mine. This church, you people, you don't belong to anyone in this room. You're not theirs. You're God's. And the instant that we in this church, we particularly in leadership, start to think that you, this church, belongs to us, to me, rather than God, we are going to fail as tenants because we're forgetting our place. We're going to fail to lead you, his church, to produce the fruit that he desires for him, your owner. Look, I hope that we see a ton of salvations in this church. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'll say it as often as I have to. It's my prayer that the baptistry behind me never runs dry, that we see God calling people to himself, saving them through his gospel, and bringing them into this church. I hope that that is true over and over and over again. Sunday after Sunday, we see people repenting and believing in the gospel. I hope that this church grows, that it grows exponentially. Growth isn't the end-all, the be-all, but let's bear more fruit. The more fruit, the better. But shame on me, shame on us, if we want those things, that fruit, for our own benefit. If we want more salvations, just so there are more people in this room. If we want more people in this room, just so there's more money for us to play with. If we want more money for us to play with, just so we have nicer things. A more comfortable church that we might be able to be a part of. Shame on us, if that's the truth. May we hope that we do our job as tenants. Not so that we keep our job as tenants. Not so that we get recognized as greater tenants by other men. But that we might bear the fruit that God has given his people to bear that we might accomplish the task that he has given his people to do. We talked about the same thing last week. The, The fruit that God desires out of his people is their faithfulness. And that faithfulness most often looks like personal repentance, personal holiness. And that's most often going to lead to the salvation and conversion of all people, of the nations. That our fruit isn't for us, our fruit is for him. And the fruit that we are to bear doesn't look like more money. It doesn't look like more numbers. It looks like us being faithful. It looks like you living a life of belief, confession, and repentance. It looks like you living a life of personal holiness. You living a life of intentional evangelism and discipleship for the people around you. That's faithfulness. That's fruit. We have to remember our place, that we are tenants who have been given the job to bear fruit for our owner. If we remember where we fit in God's plan, if we remember our place rather than forgetting it like the religious leaders in our text, we can avoid their same failure. But the final failure of religious people that we'll see in our text today is in rejecting the son. You see, we fail when we reject the son. The parable continues in verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They rejected not only the messengers, not only his servants, but even the master's own son. And why? Because they want his stuff. They say, Look at all that the son has. He's the heir. Let's kill him, and we can take it for ourselves. The son arrived, and they assumed the owner was dead. They said, no, 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 there's no way that he'd be sending the son, his heir to us. He would either send another servant, or he would come himself. For the son to come means that he's now the new owner. Everything belongs to him, and if we kill him, it's up for grabs. They think the owner's dead, the son's all that's left. They said, we kill this guy, we get this land. And believe it or not, that's actually how it tended to work sometimes. If an owner of a land dies, there's no heir. It's ready to be claimed by whoever does it. It's like ancient dibs. Whoever is standing there closest to the land and says, mine, it's yours. And there's no way to be closer to the land when it's up for grabs than to kill the guy that it belongs to. You're the first one to know that it's up for grabs. You kill the son, you claim it as your, as your own land, and it's yours. So then they reject the son. They reject his message. And therefore, they reject his father because they want what the son has. They already think it should be their land. They already think the fruit should belong to them. So they see this is their chance. The master's dead, so let's take his vineyard. So what do they do? They kill the son, verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I was struck this week as I was reading this text how much this text works Not only as a parable, but also as a prophecy. The religious leaders rejected the prophets. They treated them shamefully. And yet, the owner, who has every right from the very beginning, from the very first mistreatment, to replace his tenants, to judge them, he continued instead to to send prophet after prophet, warning after warning of his long suffering patience and the availability of salvation for his people. And what does he get? The same result. They beat the the prophets. They mistreat them. They kill them. And so, finally, ultimately, he sends his son. And the tenants, the people in charge, the religious leaders, rather than seeing the severity of their own sin, rather than seeing the grace of the father, the glorious humility of the son, they not only reject the son, but they kill him. They treat him shamefully. Because they didn't just want the son's stuff. They ultimately wanted his life. So then they reject the son and receive neither his stuff nor his life. Verse nine. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Of all the parables that Jesus told, this one may be the most transparent of any of them that he does. It is obvious to everyone who hears this parable exactly what is happening. I love what it says there in verse 12. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. I wonder how far into it it took for them to figure that out. At what point do they say, wait, I think he's talking about us. I think think we're the tenants. And even worse, I don't think the tenants are the good guys in this story. That Jesus guy is telling this parable against us. How dare he? But notice their response to this conviction. Their response to this accusation coming from Jesus. When they figure out what he's saying, what do they do? They left him and they went away. And that rejection was ultimately what sealed their fate. That was ultimately when they crossed the Rubicon, ultimately, when the die was cast. They were confronted with their own sin, as well as the truth that the Son had come, sent from the Father, and rather than having the good and right response of repentance, they failed. They left Him, they went away. You see, they, they wanted His inheritance. They wanted his life, so they tried to take it, both of them. And maybe the biggest failure of this whole text is that they wanted his inheritance, and guess what? They could have gotten it. They wanted his life, and guess what? They could have gotten it. When Christ came as the Son to save sinners, he came to give them his own glorious life in the place of theirs. You see, we, through our sin, deserve to die, and yet he came. Yet he exchanged his perfect perfect life for ours. And when he has saved a sinner, that sinner who has been saved is now no longer a sinner, but a child of God. A fellow son with Christ. An heir of God. And all that the father has planned to give to his children, they can now enjoy. They could have received both the inheritance and the life that they desired through the Son if they had only listened to his message. If they had only received him as the Son. If they hadn't rejected him. And we know that that message of salvation is there through the quotation that Jesus makes in verses 10 and 11. That's from Psalm 118, verses 19 through 24, which says this. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, the Father has answered His people. He has provided for His people an inheritance through the gates of righteousness by sending His own Son and becoming the salvation they needed. Providing for them the salvation they required. The Son, the stone that the builders rejected, is the very salvation that they needed to receive both life and inheritance. And so now... Through his person, through his work, he has become the cornerstone by accomplishing these things. See, of all their failures, of all the ways they did not do what they were supposed to do, rejecting the son has to be at the top of that list. And so many of us tend to make that same mistake today. You see, we want the inheritance. That sounds pretty good. A mansion just over a hilltop. Great. Sign me up. We want the life. You know, when given the option, heaven or hell, that's not really a hard choice. We want the life. But we reject the Son through whom and in whom we receive all of that and more. You see, our greatest inheritance is him. It's not what he gives us outside of himself. It is himself. The greatest joy in heaven is him. The life we have is only life rather than death because it is life with him. So yes, when you do accept him rather than reject him, you also accept his cross. When you receive him, you also receive his affliction. But receiving him rather than rejecting him is absolutely worth it. It's the only way to receive both the life and the inheritance that you desire. It's my prayer today that we will avoid the failures of these religious people who held to their own earthly authority rather than submitting to the heavenly authority who misplaced their fears and priorities, who forgot their place, and who gave it to them. And ultimately, the failures of these religious leaders who rejected the Son and in so doing lost everything. It's my hope that we will accept him And submit to him through repentance and faith today and every day. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to avoid these failures. Thank you for sending your son. That we might, instead of rejecting him, accept him. Receive him as the son. Thank you for becoming the salvation that we require. The salvation we need. Help for us to avoid these failures. Help for us to hold on to whatever earthly authority we might have loosely. Help for us to submit it always and only to you and your heavenly authority. Help for us to keep our fears rightly ordered. To not be misplaced. To not focus on man rather than God. To not focus on being Right, rather than admitting we're wrong, to not focus on our own safety, over the cost of possibly telling the truth. Help us to be a people who accept you and remember our place. Help us to live a lives of stewards, lives of tenants, who bear fruit for the owner, you, who give to you that which you require. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us, even though we fail, even through our failure. Thank you for being the one who does not fail, the one who saves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.